Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Yes, it is, and welcome back. It's been too long because I was off a little bit last week, but it is a delight to welcome back David Schweikert, Congressman Schweikert, representing Arizona's 6th Congressional District, and an awful lot of common sense. David, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us this afternoon. I had a good time abandoning us for a week. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I had to go to Washington, actually. I had to do some work in Washington. You know how that is. And you didn't stop by? No, well, I, I think you were in Phoenix. I think we were like that Barry Manilow song, Two Ships oh, in the yeah, Night. Yeah. Yeah, the, fact you're, the fact you're quoting Barry Manilow songs now, um, um, yeah, we, it actually creeps me out. A little uh, bit. Really? <laughs> okay. All right. All right. I, I'll. Um, I'll. I, I want to give you some props here. Uh, you did a speech on the House floor. Um, at Forbes. Forbes News is highlighting it on YouTube. It's yeah. already got four thousand viewers uh, by the end and of actually, tonight. It's yeah. Like oh, is it? The one from two or a week a half ago is like one point three million. Yeah, now. you're you're becoming an, uh, a YouTube influencer. I hope well, you are no, becoming. It, it's actually I'm somewhat hopeful. Yeah, you know because these are fairly technical presentations. Well, you have these that boards that are great. That I got to tell the audience this is so important. Go to go to go to YouTube and type in uh, David Schweiker uh, and or or the title of the, your piece. This place should be ashamed. You're right. I, I was wrong. I undercounted it. It's a hundred and almost one hundred and twenty thousand views at this point because you do these great boards and explanations and graphs. Tell us what you were getting at. This place should be ashamed, you said. Well, uh, look, we were trying to do the breakdown on the Democrat social spending bill as we know it. Um, Now, the first couple minutes we talked about we think we have a piece of legislation to solve much of the lunacy that is going on in our country right now. As you saw, Pfizer has a new therapeutic um, antiviral pill that's going to the FDA next week. Merck already has one. The fact of the matter is they're incredibly effective. So you can use a home test kit to know that you have a COVID. You now can take an antiviral pill. Now, you've got to take a bunch of them over a week, but it's a pill at home. The fact we have a therapeutic, as soon as the FDA approves these, um, we think the pandemic should be declared over. It's time to declare, you know, the mask mandate's gone. The vaccine mandate's gone because you have therapeutics. If you believe in science, Science is a victory right now. We have a therapeutic. Pandemic is over. So that was the first part of the presentation. Then the next 35, 40 minutes, we're breaking down how much sort of economic violence the Democrat social spending bill does to our country, but almost how much it hurts the poor. And then the other little perverse secret in what the Democrats are doing, how many giveaways there are to actually rich people. They've hidden billions and billions and billions of dollars of giveaways to the rich because the fact of the matter is really, really, really rich people are who finance the Democrat Party. Mm-hmm. 
And David, there's so much more in, in it too, right? It, it, it's 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 actually insidious on the incentivizations it puts forward, right? Steering people into union work, steering people into academic intellectual stupidity with college well, and university poor, degrees, but, right? But it also has a level of cruelty, and, yeah. and, and this is uh, University of Chicago for their top economists did a paper a couple of weeks ago, and trying to point out that the transfer payments, so the monthly checks they want to send out, because they de-linked it from any need to work Mm -hmm. or look for work or gain job skills, that by the end of the decade, those populations are actually going to be every bit as poor, if not poorer, because what the Democrats are doing is trying to almost finance a permanent underclass and disincentivize participation in society, participation in the noble act of work. And it's actually really dark. Um, It's incredibly dark a number of the things the left is doing in their legislation. One of the issues, I know you get asked about it a lot, it comes up in almost every, every polite conversation when we're talking about the state of our society, is this notion of you know, people not going back to work, a lot of jobs unfilled. Um, and, and some people say, well, it's the great resignation, as if that's an answer. It's not really an answer. It, giving it a, a name, is yeah, it right, we, David? We there is a little, cause for this, right? Yeah, we need to be a little careful, though, thinking we know all the answers. Okay. Um, yeah, I have some knee-jerk responses of, hey, you know, there's massive amounts of cash in people's bank accounts because of all the transfer payments, the stimulus payments. Um, but there's some things we have to be hopeful, but we don't actually have enough data yet to, to, to be honest. So we've got to be careful when we're shooting our mouths off, which, you know, that's what I do for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, or oh, and me. Also, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. yeah, you too. But and think of it, in the last year and a half, we've actually had more people start little businesses. And right. A lot of these are micro-businesses, mm-hmm. I mean, out of the back bedroom. We, we don't see borrowing for those yet, but is that because they already had some cash from, you know, uh, the enhanced unemployment or other things? But it's a real worry because we do know we've had about four plus million more people do retirement in this time slot than we expected. And where we are in our demographic cycle as the society is getting old really fast, we need those people because they're really skillful to stay in and work. So think of this. Last month, we're at the same labor force participation as we were a year ago, even though all these things have happened, all, you know, all the vaccines, all the cash, all those other things. That's not good. Um, that, no, you're that, right to point that out. You know, I got I got to say you're right to point that out. A lot of these problems were years in the making. It didn't just maybe COVID exposed some of it or, or exacerbated some of it. But we were talking about trucking problems for years. We were talking about the under uh, the the lack of uh, male participation in the workforce before anyone heard of COVID. Uh, This was a growing problem. Yeah. One of these shows you and I should because it's an uncomfortable subject and as conservatives, we often don't talk about it enough. But there's some really dystopian data out there of how many young males are dropping out of college. Yep. College and, and workforce, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and it actually has a cascade effect. Yep. Um, if your daughter, my daughter, one day is looking for a marriageable male. Yep. 
And are you in certain minority communities? Because in the African-American community, the dropout rate of young men is very high. Yep. Well, that has a cascade effect. Yep. Um, so many um, young women of color are graduating yep. college. Yep. And, and asking, where have, are the men? And, and it yep. causes a real problem when you start want really need a society to have family formation. Which, by so the way, is a preventative to poverty, there. right? I mean, this is one of the greatest preventatives to poverty, right? It, it, it's the fastest cure yep. of poverty is family formation. Right, right, right. Uh, I would love to do that with you for an extended uh, thing with Collins. And I'd love to have you come in. It's a big issue. We could do it for an hour. Let me, let me, let me mention something else you do in, in your presentation over uh, that YouTube and Forbes uh, is highlighting uh, on YouTube, David. And it's one of my favorite things that doesn't get discussed enough, and you do it best. Um, if there were a 100% tax on small business and the upper-income families, mm-hmm. you're not even close to dealing with the budget deficit. Oh, heavens no. Yeah. Heavens you could have a 100% confiscation and still have a budget deficit. Yeah, you can take yeah. all the riches' money and all the small businesses' right. money, and you can't get near covering um, the spend rate. And, and, and there's... For, for folks that that look, the political class for years lied. Can you believe that <laughs> the leftists lied to people saying, "Oh, if we just didn't spend so much money on defense, mm-hmm. you know, or oil and gas, we would have plenty of money." Or and re- Republicans had that. Oh, it's waste and fraud. It's foreign aid. Those are rounding errors for the amount of money we're spending. Yep. And the scale of the debt. Um. And it's really hard to talk about, but the math is the math is the math. It's demographics. The crisis that is about to wipe out our society is we're getting old really fast, and we haven't set aside nearly enough resources. So in 29 years, Congressional Budget Office says we have $112 trillion of publicly borrowed money, and that's in today's dollars. So it's already adjusted for inflation. Today's dollars, $112 trillion. The Biden spending plan, that the social spending plan, according to Penn Wharton modeling, adds another 24.4% on top of that. And every dime of that $112 trillion is either Social Security, or, but it's mostly Medicare. The rest of the budget actually has a positive balance. So the question then becomes, and maybe we do this next week, how do you deal with entitlement reform? It's the hardest, right? But but you see, I think there's a bigger revolution. Oh, good. Grow whatever is necessary. You grow the economy. Grow the economy. You adopt technology. You adopt, you know, disruptions like um, telehealth and all the, you cure diabetes. You put a boatload of cash into, because diabetes is 31% of all Medicare spending. How Just many? How many, di- how many congressmen talk about Crothia? Boy, that's that's a phrase I haven't. I'm so glad but, you're using that phrase. But I mean, the problem is, so no. remember, remember, Social Security, Medicare yep. are societal promises. Right. We made a social contract. Right. But that doesn't mean we can't do the types of disruptions that use technology. A messenger RNA is about to cure so many of the diseases of our brothers and sisters. Five percent of our society that suffers chronic conditions is the majority of our healthcare spending. Yep. What happens if we can cure them? Yep. And, and, and that's, that's the most and we want to. loving, yeah. kind, and turns out to be economically beneficial thing you can do. And it's a radically different way to look at 
how we save ourselves, then the people say, well, let's just cut this. Mm-hmm. Because it's not going to happen. It's not going to work. And it didn't solve the underlying problem of, you know, if you have a huge portion of your society that's sick. And there is a path to cure them. Who would have ever thought, you know, what Donald Trump did, you could have developed a vaccine in less than a year? Oh, yeah. Not Anthony Fauci. He said it couldn't be done three times. Yeah. But yeah. we now have turned so many diseases into a software problem. Yep. If you're a conservative out there, this is where we push optimism, but we also push the fact that we can make set people free. You don't have to be a ward of the government and being sick and taken care of by the government. If we do this the right way, we can be healthy and free from government. Singing the song of my people. Speaking of singing, you, you could, I'll let you go in a second here. You criticized me for Barry Manilow. Let me give you – is Jim Croce any better? Ain't nobody seen a rainbow till they've seen the rain. Would that work? Let's <laughs> just – let's just – your version of bumper music just – I love you. To All right. Guess, well, let, let, wait, you out. get to guest host from time to time. You can have your own bumper music. <laughs> you heard what I played when I was what, guest host. What, what did you play when you? Huh? Hip hop. No, tri- trip hop. Tri- There's a difference. Trip hop. Di- oh gosh. It, it's sort of very mellow music. You know, I, I I have to read for hours and hours and hours every day. <laughs> so, um, you know, I so I had him playing something called Hoover Sonic, which is which if, if Bill is listening. Plug it in. Oh, my gosh. David, you always make me do homework after our interviews. <laughs> now i got to go learn more. Bless you, sir, until next week. I hope we'll talk before that, but if we don't, we will next week, sir. All right. You're wonderful. Bless you, Godspeed. You, too. Someone send David Schweikert the collected works of Barry Manilow. Please. Thank you. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, an unusually high uh, number of calls today, which is great. So if you don't get uh, through, be persistent. Be persistent. We'll get to you. Elliot is in Chandler. Hello, Elliot. Hello. Um, I had a question. Um, Something really perplexed me the other day, and I said, gosh, you know, maybe I'll call Seth Leibson and he could figure it out. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Okay. I usually rely on you all, but okay. Well, no, uh, great show. So hopefully Thanks. I can add to it okay. um, with a, with perhaps a little bit of humor within, within a question. So since since critical since those who push critical race theory, um, I, I guess propose the idea that critical race theory is the only way we can get over our our own racism. Yeah. Um, I, I am I'm just absolutely baffled at my daughter's soccer game yesterday. My younger daughter is two and a few months, and she was playing and getting along with an African-American girl of of age of six, and she hadn't been taught critical race theory, so I'm so perplexed at how she could get along with her. (laughs) And and that's the humor. That's obviously... It made me laugh. No, it made me laugh. in, In the context of the those who push critical race theory supposing that that's the only way we can figure it out is by accepting that and teaching it when when for many and most it's inherent uh, that we can, we are sophisticated enough that we can appreciate another culture and and love it for what it is even though it's not our 
uh, native culture. It doesn't have to be. And, um, and so, uh, you know, I, I very much appreciated that because how much they try and push it and think that people in and of themselves or for, you know, what other, whatever other teachings they've had in their own life couldn't possibly be a reason for um, loving others of other culture, including, you know, the, the primary one that's pushed of African-American, um, you know, uh, origin. And, uh, you know, and I've, I've got an African-American um, sort of uh, nephew-in-law, if you will, married into the family, and we, we, and we like him a little bit more than some of our own, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I, I say that in, in complete satire, just thinking, I, you know, it's, it's absolute hogwash, um, that uh, that critical race theory needs to be, or, or, or some suppose that it needs to be taught. Well, you raise several interestingly important points that I think are actually lost in the conversation or the debate about it, if I might. And I'm glad you did a little bit with humor. You can find and discover great truths in humor because all humor to work has to have truth, right, in it, yeah. uh, or at least a level of it. Um and I think a couple of things. First of all, I don't know, for all the reading I've done, and I did it before it was popular because I took courses from Derek Bell in Boston, who was one of the founders of critical race theory. Um, I don't know that the ultimate point was ever to get us beyond racism in the teaching of critical race theory. I'm not sure that was the goal. Sad to say. You would have hoped well that that would be. Well said. Um, I think the goals were much other than getting over because I think it created a whole new industry that, as Larry Elder likes to say, um, you know, creates a um, cre- cre- creates a situation where 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 the demand doesn't have enough supply, so the suppliers, uh, you know, the suppliers have to be invented to create, you know, you know, you know, to 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 create more issues, and and we've had this through history. Look. Let me try it this way, Elliot, in getting back to basics on this thing. And it kind of all ties together because Derek Bell, who was a Harvard Law professor, was very famous for the lectures he gave on Brown versus Board of Education. But think about the case of Brown versus Board of Education from, what, 1954 for a moment. The whole point of it was to have society integrated, to integrate uh, society starting in our schools and then building upwards. And 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 it and it worked, or I should say it was working in 1958, just shortly after Brown was decided, Gallup did a poll and the poll said that if a black person lived next door, would you be likely to move? And 50 percent of white Americans said they would. About half of white America in 1958 said they'd rather move. Okay, they would be likely to move. By 1978, that 50 percent went to 13 percent. By 1970, uh, excuse me, 1997, well within you know our lifetimes and memories, one percent, one percent. It was working really well. Now I have that music and that break. So if you'll stay with me, Elliot, I want to chase this trail a little bit with you because it all is bound up in this issue of uh, Brown versus Board. I'll tell you more about it in just a moment. But stay with me.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Elliot and Chandler, are you still there, Elliot? I am. I'm glad you are. Thank you. Uh, just to reprise a moment, you uh, have a six-year-old daughter who's in a school where they don't teach critical race theory. She was playing soccer lovingly and uh, and uh, and amicably well, and in every other wonderful child well, sense. Yes, she's actually younger. Younger. It was. It's my two-year-old daughter playing with a six-year-old African American girl. There you go. There you go. Who a two-year-old was, as, who was as pleasant as could be. Yeah. And that's that's where the two-year-old. You know where did where did she get it if she hasn't ever been taught it? Right. So you know? so the issue is really an interesting one because we've lost sight uh, we've lost sight of the whole purpose of education and this issue of race. I was talking about Brown versus Board of Education, one of the most landmark rulings of the Supreme Court. Every ju- every prospective Supreme Court justice before the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee will always give obeisance to Brown versus Board. They would talk to it as uh, as some people have called it a super-duper precedent. Uh, it was really a landmark decision, uh, uh, you know, ending uh, ending the notion of separate but equal, ending the notion that was, uh, that was uh, uh, promulgated in, in the Plessy versus Ferguson case in the 19th century. And in that case of Brown versus Board of Education, the court asks – does segregation of children in public schools on the basis of race deprive the children of the minority group equal educational opportunities? We believe that it does. Separating children, distinguishing children by race harms their educational opportunities. Thurgood Marshall argued the case. He wasn't on the court. He was an advocate. Uh, He was a lawyer representing the NAACP. He wrote in his brief, distinctions by race are so evil, so arbitrary and invidious that a state bound to defend the equal protections of the law may not invoke them in any public sphere. This was what Brown was about, not using race as any kind of criterion in education whatsoever. That's what Brown taught. So interestingly comes Derek Bell, critical race theory founder, law professor at Harvard at the time. And you know what he does with Brown versus Board of Education? He says – this is part of critical race theory, by the way, and this is accepted in critical race theory. And everyone pays obeisance now to this, which is Brown versus Board wasn't about equality of the races and disrupting segregation in America. It was. You can read this everywhere he writes about it. You can hear it in any lecture that is available on YouTube. I heard it several times from him and I've read it several times. He says it was about – Winning the Cold War and showing this and depriving the Soviet Union of a talking point about racism in America. It was about depriving the Soviet Union of propaganda by them not being able to point to racially divided America anymore, which is something that kind of gives you a hint as to the fraud of critical race theory. You know why? It was a unanimous decision of the nine-member Supreme Court in 1954. Not one of those judges, justices, and not one of the briefs ever said that, ever thought that, ever believed that. It's not history because it wasn't true. It wasn't true at the time. It was a supposition or an argument invented by the critical race theorists. Why? Why would they do that? Why would they take something so great like Brown versus Board and tell us it's not so great after all. Well, 
Could it be that they actually don't like the notion of integration, equality, and colorblindness? And the answer is, of course, that's the reason. That's the reason. They had to deprive the beauty and magic of Brown versus Board and this society of its beauty and magic and make it about something else entirely alien to the justices on the Supreme Court in 1954 and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Which is, you know, you used the word fraud in there, and, and that's exactly what I was thinking. What, what, is the, what is the false statement they're using for, uh, or what is the benefit for the false statements they're using? In, in the oh, yes, 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 yes. Racist. That's an important question, too. Do you have an answer? I have an answer. Do you have an answer? Go, go ahead. Go ahead. To deprive America of being seen as a good country. Well, that that and that and to um, uh, psychologically control people. Yes, sure. Yes, that that is what it's about. If you yes, that's a, yes. It is about getting people to change their minds about everything they have been taught. We started this show with Orwell. We may be close to uh, closing it with Orwell. But, yeah, you're right, Elliot. Kids aren't taught to think in terms racial. They have to be carefully taught, as the song in South Pacific goes, to think in terms racial. And you can thank the left for re-disintegrating this country. Re-disintegrating this country. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. Be right back. Is that Danny Kay singing? Rogers and Hammerstein, I think, South Pacific. Yeah, you have to be carefully taught. The children have to be carefully taught to be afraid. That's an interesting one, fear. This, you know, I talk about the crisis industrial complex a lot, but, you know, I may be overdoing it with that. You know, for those of us old enough to, uh, to remember Monty Python and the Spanish Inquisition, we don't need audio on this, Bill. I know you like to do it, but... It's it's the theory that, that they operate on fear and surprise, fear and surprise, surprise and fear. They are their chief weapons, fear and surprise. Think about the fear that has been put into the society. But take that aside for a moment and now think about the fear that's been put into the minds and souls of children. Think about that. Arizona chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics put out a press release today, the American Academy of Pediatrics. And um, it's an unhappy report. It's a very unhappy report. Suicide rates, opioid poisonings, other drug death poisonings, Substance use-related deaths is the technical term. Skyrocketed last year in Arizona over the year before. Far more children died. Far more children died last year over the year before. And far more children died from the mitigation efforts of COVID than COVID. You have a teenager going to the hospital. The chances are far greater. The percentages show it. The data is in. 
They're going there for mental health issues, not COVID issues. And you know what's so sad about this? What's so sad about all of this? The headline. The headline of this press release. 396 Arizona children deaths in 2020 were preventable. This was preventable. Now, it's preventable only in one situation. If people are educated on this issue. I try not to carry grudges. There's one I'm going to have a hard time getting over. This station, Jim Ryan, management, my fellow Salem hosts, and a handful of others. Heather McDonald certainly is one of them. handful of others, a couple professors at Stanford. They were saying all of this, not this past March, but two marches ago. We were talking about this almost nonstop. The mental health problems we would be imposing on our children for a disease that won't touch them very much at all. For a disease that affects them less than dangers from swimming or getting in a car or the flu. Or the flu. It was preventable. And when we put these messages up on YouTube and elsewhere, YouTube and elsewhere took them down because it didn't fit the narrative of fear and surprise. It didn't fit the narrative of instantiating and implementing fear into our children, of which there is really only one reason to do. Why would you put fear into the heads and minds and souls of children? Why would you do it? Why would you do it? Obviously, for some kind of public policy prescription. And so I will have a hard time getting over this grudge of what we've done to children because we were saying it. We were talking about it. And the elites didn't want us saying it. They wanted to hide this information from parents and families and just good old American citizens. And they used all kinds of artifices to do it. When I was quoting psychiatrists and other public health experts and children's health experts, we were banned on YouTube and told we only allow government sources on COVID-19. Okay. I called their bluff. My entire monologue one day was one government source. You'd think a pretty good one. A double doctorate. Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services for Mental Health, Ph.D. and an M.D., Eileen McCanns-Gantz. And all I did, all I did saying so was, quote, a speech she gave on the mental health problems of children. YouTube banned it. No one just government. Obviously, it was a lie. It was a pretense. It was an artifice. And I will have a hard time getting over this anger, what we've done to our children, because it was preventable. I quoted the philosopher Hannah Arendt last night briefly. I'll give you the full quote. There is a fantastic car- – this is in the 50s. There is a fantastic caricature of progressive education in America 
which by abolishing the authority of adults implicitly denies their responsibility for the world into which they have borne their children and refuses the duty of guiding them into it. Have we now come to the point, she asks, where it is the children who are being asked to change or improve the world, and do we intend to have our political battles fought out in the schoolyards? Well, now we know that question wasn't philosophical or rhetorical, don't we? Those answers and those receipts are in, and I'll say it again. The quote that all revolutions eat their children is edited. The full quote is, like Saturn, all revolutions end up eating their children. Why like Saturn? Because in Roman myth, he ate his children because he feared them. And a society that fears its children is a sick society and no better than a society that tortures them. We have become the kind of country we used to send aid to. And that's a very sad thing. Yeah, Chubby, welcome back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. It means a ton. We don't take any of it or you for granted. We really don't. It's a privilege to be here, and we feel privileged that you will allow us into your cars, your hearts, your homes, your offices, your podcasting, wherever. I, You know what might be an interesting thing to do someday, one of these days? Bill, if you wouldn't mind reminding me. I, I never have one book going at a time. I have like three or four books. And the reason is because when I have one book, when I start with a book, it makes me – by reference, <laughs> get other books, and and so I am. I'm reading, rereading a few things. Um, we talked earlier about the importance of rereading Orwell. Uh, another book I was rereading was a 1959 book by Bill Buckley, uh, Up from Liberalism. It's a funny thing, you know. Buckley never wrote a book on conservatism. What conservatism is? It's kind of a, he was asked many times. He never did. He wrote a book on what liberalism is in 1959, which is basically a book about what conservatism is. If you understand that point, and I go, I read slowly too. If you're like me, do you read slowly? So I underline things, and I stumbled upon this quote from this 1959. 1959, the attenuation of the early principles of this country. That's a Buckley word. Attenuation means. Uh, weakening, okay, weakening. The attenuation of the early principles of this country has made America vulnerable to the most opportunistic ideology of the day, the strange and complex ideology of modern liberalism. He is saying in 1959 that the weakening of the view of America and its importance and its founding was made vulnerable by liberalism. That was 1959. It was made vulnerable by liberalism. And a decade later, the left took over and finished the job. Finished the job. And thus, as Sir Thomas More said, I show you the times. Well, we have a lot of work to do, don't we? We'll do it together. Not going anywhere. Until tomorrow. God bless you all. Class dismissed. <laughs>